0: Morning Keystone, you have your Bibles, you can open up again to Zechariah, that's a series we started last week, uh, second to last book in the Old Testament, Uh, and we're looking at Zechariah's visions in this book, he has eight of them, Uh, we're just going to spend five weeks, we'll combine some of them, and so this morning we're going to be in Zechariah 1, uh, 7 through 17, and then we'll also look at Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, Uh, these are the first and last visions that he's going to see. Uh, in 1989, there was a, a movie that came out that I can remember watching multiple times as a kid growing up. Uh, it's probably a movie that, that many of you have seen as well. Uh, a movie by the name of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, it's one of those movies where like, the title kind of gives away the whole plot of the movie. There's not a whole lot of mystery there. Uh, and I think it's one of those movies that as a kid, I thought, this is amazing. And if I watched it as an adult now, I'd probably think like, this is incredibly cheesy. Uh, but, but the basic kind of plot line is there's this father who's a scientist, uh, and he's creating this shrink ray gun. There, he's trying to be able to shrink things down to a very tiny size. Uh, and spoiler alert uh, the kids get shrunken down. guess you want to guess that. But they get shrunken down, they get swept up, put in the trash, kind of in the back corner of the lawn, and, and the story follows their travels back through the lawn, ultimately up to the attic to try to get back to normal size. And what's, what's interesting about this movie is that things that would normally be very small all of a sudden become big and threatening, right? Like going across a lawn becomes like walking through a massive jungle. Like a blade of grass becomes like the biggest tree you've ever seen. A a water sprinkler system in the lawn all of a sudden becomes a torrential downpour that turns into a life-threatening flood. And a spider becomes the world's largest and scariest beast possible. By virtue of them being shrunk down, everything else gets bigger. Zachariah's visions, especially his first and last visions, are meant to have the exact opposite effect on us as people that they're meant to take things that seem big and threatening and shrink them down. And God doesn't do this with a shrink ray gun, but he does this by giving us visions that open up our eyes to see how big he is and to see the unseen realities of what he's doing so that we might then see everything else through that lens. We might see in some ways this is the very purpose of visions in the bible like the ones in Zechariah 1 through 6 but also in other places because w- when we read through these visions frankly we're probably going to say what in the world is going on here sometimes like this is just not the normal way that we're used to being communicated to we're used to like a, a TED talk with a nice story and-, and a couple main points and a takeaway and so when we hear there was a horseman on a red horse and there was red brown and white horses and angels and there immense treat, we're like what is happening? So we should ask, well, why does God communicate in this way? Not only in Zechariah, but, but sometimes in Ezekiel and Daniel and, and Revelation. Because ultimately, visions are a very powerful way of conveying the truth and opening our eyes to unseen spiritual realities. We, we could almost compare apocalyptic visions, like the ones we'll find in this book, to the defroster in your car. And follow me. Here's what I mean by that. There are moments where you walk out to your car in the morning and that windshield is covered with fog or frost. And you know there's more out there than you can see, right? There's more out there you can see, but all you can see is that fog. And so you turn on your defroster. And if you're like me, as soon as you can see kind of two inches, you start to drive and just peer out those two inches. But but that defroster ultimately clears the fog so that you can see reality for what it really is. Our spiritual vision tends to get foggy lots of times in this life, but perhaps in part because we live in a secular society where spiritual realities are minimized and everything that's material is what's focused on. Or perhaps maybe just as often, it's because we get discouraged by so many things. And discouragement clouds our vision and keeps us from seeing spiritual realities we need to see. And so visions, like the ones given in Zechariah, are God's way of defrosting our spiritual vision so that we might see and feel the weight of who he is and what he's doing. Because these visions aren't just a behind-the-scenes look to see what's happening in the unseen realm. There are also these images that are given to us that are meant to evoke us emotionally, deep within us, and so strengthen our faith. Here's what a guy by the name of Daryl Johnson says about imagery, like we're going to see in the Bible here. Imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey, convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect And through the emotions, into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Visions are meant to help us see and feel theological truths in such a way that they end up shaping our lives. Not just affecting our heads. Or or in other words, here's a simple way we could put it. Visions are meant to help us live by faith and not simply by sight. They help us to see beyond whatever discouraging circumstances we are facing to see a God who is massive and to see that he is at work even when we don't understand what he's doing. And so in Zechariah's first and last visions, which almost serve as this bookends, in chapter 1, 7 through 17, and chapter 6, 1 through 8, we're going to see Zechariah especially give us this picture of God's sovereign rule over everything, everything. And so this morning, as as we look at these visions, we'll start by looking at the first one and then kind of wrap up later on by looking at the second one. We're gonna hopefully see four things related to God's sovereignty. The picture of his sovereignty, the mystery of his sovereignty, the purposes of his sovereignty, and then the conclusion of his sovereignty. And we'll wrap up by just asking, okay, how should God's sovereignty affect our day-to-day lives? So let me pray for us, and then we'll read in Zechariah 1 verse 7 through 17. God, we are people who are in constant need of you to open our eyes to see what you want us to see so that we might live how you want us to live, so that we might worship you in every mountain and every valley in our lives. We know that (laughs) you shine light in the darkness, that that's exactly what you did when you drew us to faith in Christ in the first place, opening our eyes to the glory of Christ, but we are in continual need of you to open our eyes again and again and again to see the world as it really is, as it really is, as you see it. And so we pray that you'd open ours this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak to us through Zachariah's words, which are ultimately your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is in the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they, whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they farthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it declares the Lord of hosts and the measuring line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. The the first thing I think that we can get in here just by looking at the picture that's presented is a picture of God's sovereignty, that God is ruling over everything. God is ruling over everything. Nothing escapes his rule, his plans, his purposes. Let's just grasp the picture that Zachariah saw, first of all. So he sees this valley full of myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are kind of like evergreen trees today, right? So if you just picture this kind of dark valley full of Christmas trees, you've got the image. And then amongst these trees, Zachariah sees this red horse with an angel on it, who we find out is the angel of the Lord. And then behind him, there's more horses scattered throughout, probably lots of them, red, brown, which is sorrel, white, with other angels on them that we figure out happens later in the passage based on the conversation there. So you got that picture, dark valley full of trees with horses and angels on them. And we, like Zachariah, ask, um, what's going on here, right? What's going on here? And thankfully, there's this angel standing next to him and says, let me show you, let me show you. And then we find out that these horsemen and these angels have been sent out by God to patrol the earth, and they're coming back to give their report of what they've found. So that's the picture. Now, this is where it's really important for us to understand the historical background at this time. Because while today, horses may not be a big deal to us, back then, horses are a really big deal. They emphasize military strength, might, power, royalty, majesty. And so we might think, oh, this is a battle scene. They're getting ready to go into battle. But it's not. That's going to come later. Because they're actually reporting back with what they found. And this is where, if we understand what's happening in Persia at that time, it helps us understand this passage. Remember, Persia is the superpower of the day. And part of what Darius would do or any Persian king is he would send out riders on horses to patrol his empire as a form of surveillance and security that they would then report back to him, here's what's happening under your rule and your authority. And so just think with me for a moment. If you're an Israelite and you're living in Jerusalem and you see a horseman coming in with a Persian man on it, you are immediately reminded in that moment We are under the rule and authority of Darius. He controls our life and our fate. And what God is saying in this vision is, no, you and Darius and everyone else is under my rule and authority and I control your fate. See, this vision is showing us God's sovereign rule is comprehensive. God rules over everything and everyone. He rules over every nation and every event in history. He rules over every life and every detail and event that happens in our lives. Nothing escapes his rule. And and I just want you to think about how this would capture Israel's imagination. That just as the horsemen of Persia declare everywhere they go, Darius rules over you. So, God's unseen horsemen declare everywhere they go, God rules over everything. I mean, this must have been such an encouragement to this little broken down city of Israelites to hear our God is ruling over everything. Nothing is outside of his control, nothing is outside of his plans, nothing outside of his purposes. He has it all under his authority, and it's going exactly how he wants it to. The second thing I think that goes with this, though, is that God's sovereign rule puts what we see into perspective. What the Israelites saw was a Persian empire that seemed so big, so big, and they felt so small. What they saw were peoples around them who were constantly threatening them and oppressing them. What they saw were heavy taxes. What they saw was a famine. What they saw was difficulty, struggle, day after day after day. And yet what we see in this vision and what they would have seen is God is not flustered. God is not worried. God is not overwhelmed. God is not surprised. God is ruling over everything. A God who looks at the big and terrifying realities of our life and says, but I'm bigger and I'm better. I mean, I, I think of Isaiah 40, 22 in capturing this reality. In that verse, Isaiah talks of God, and he says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's God who's ruling, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. I was walking out in the church parking lot this past week, one day, uh, and I came across a grasshopper in the parking lot. And you probably can't even see it. This is me taking a picture kind of like up here at the ground. And maybe you can see it. It's right in the center. It's just that little green-brown dot, right? That's how small a grasshopper is compared to me. And like any grown man, uh, I stopped and proceeded to play with that grasshopper for a couple minutes, right? And I found I could just kind of nudge it, and it would go where I wanted it to. Just poke my foot at it. Just prod it with my finger, and it would go exactly where I want it to. I mean, that's the image God in some ways is giving, not only in Isaiah, but also in this vision. I, everyone, the, the things that seem so big and daunting and terrifying to you, Israel, they are but grasshoppers to me. And I can move them in any direction that I want them to go. We so desperately need God's sovereignty to put things into perspective in our lives. On the surface we often feel like the world is spinning out of control, that things are getting crazier and crazier, and I don't deny that. But God is not up there thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what's happening? Uh Uh-oh, I didn't see this going to happen. Uh Uh-oh, I didn't see that. Like, I've got to change my plans. No, God rules over it. God rules over it all. In our own lives, on the surface, things so often don't go according to our expectations. But we have to step back and remember, but things are going according to God's plans and purposes. And though we may not understand why, we can trust and lean on him. But but the reality is, I think, as soon as we think about and grasp God's sovereignty, it almost always brings up questions in our minds. Because there's this mystery to God's rule over everything. A mystery we see even that's brought out in this vision in verses 11, 12, and 13, I think. That God's rule doesn't always make sense. Maybe you want to fill in there, God's rule rarely makes sense. Probably depends on how your life has gone. God's rule doesn't always make sense. The, the report of these horsemen is they come back and they say, the world is at rest. Which might sound like a good thing. Okay, the world's at rest? That's not good news. If you are Israel and you are expecting God to restore his kingdom... In essence, what's being said is while Israel struggles and suffers and faces difficulty, the rest of the world has peace and rest. It's a picture that things are like upside down. They're not the way they're supposed to be according to God's promises. Which leads the angel of the Lord to cry out, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Jerusalem? That question, how long, O Lord, is one you're probably familiar with. It's often heard in the laments throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms that you've come across. And it's a question that I think is comparable to our question, why God? Why God? Right? I, I remember five years ago uh, after my wife experienced a miscarriage, perhaps like some of you. That, that it happened after years and years of us praying for a child and then finally getting pregnant and, and being so excited we weren't expecting it. And this is incredible. God's answering our prayers. And, and then six weeks later, find out we, we miscarried. And, and the question that just bubbled up instantly without me even thinking is, why, God? Like, why, why would you walk us through this? Why? I, I'm positive you've asked that question in your life before. And, and I would guess when difficulty arises in your own life, that just pops up. Like, why, God? If you're sovereign and you're good, why this? And so it's, it's oddly encouraging to me to know that even the angels ask this question at times. Like, even the great angel of the Lord cries out, How long, O oh Lord, until you have mercy on your people again? How long? God, God if you are ruling sovereign like this vision tells us, well, well why are the nations at rest while your people struggle and suffer? See, there is, I think, always a mystery to God's sovereignty. That if you wrestle with God's sovereignty at times, join every single follower of Christ throughout history. There's always going to be things that prompt us to say, God, what are you doing? Right? Why does God heal some and not others? Why does God answer some prayers with a yes and others with a no? Why does he save some people and not others? Why does he let despotic rulers continue in power? Why why do the nations seem to have rest as his people struggle and suffer at times? And and I don't want to say that the Bible doesn't provide answers to these questions, but I would suggest that the Bible rarely answers these questions in such a way where all the mystery is cleared up that in some way the Bible ends up answering these questions by pointing to God is God and you are not, Kyle. And will you trust him in the midst of this? God isn't calling you and I to to figure out every aspect of his rule. God's, God's sovereignty is not like a math problem that we have to figure out and have the answer to all the time. I would say it's more like a light that enables us to walk through the mysteries and darkness of this life. That scripture provides us with a light to walk through the mystery. We'll see this in the angel's response, I would say, in verses 14 through 17. But we see it all throughout scripture. God tells us what is true so that we might stand on what is true when everything else falls apart in our lives. God gives example of how he's sovereignly worked out things that were utterly confusing and perplexing on the surface so that we might lean on him and trust him when everything seems utterly confusing and perplexing in our own lives. Here's how John Piper puts it in his book, Providence. We become less vulnerable to panic and perplexity and dread, not because there are no perplexing and fearful circumstances, but because we have seen this before in God's word God has shown us again and again that things are not what they seem and that he is always weaving something wise and good out of the painful, perplexing threads that look like a tangle in our lives. One of the reasons that we should be serious about reading and knowing the scriptures, including books like Zechariah, is because they provide us with the type of light and framework that enables us to walk through the mysteries of our life clinging to what God has said, that that God's sovereignty in some ways could could almost be compared to this headlamp that enables you to walk into the darkness in your own life, step by step by step. This past week, uh, we were having a campfire at my house with my wife and my son and I, and as we were having this campfire, uh, my son wanted to run out to the end of our yard. And there's some trees on the end of our yard, uh, and then there's also a field beyond that. And he wanted to run out to grab some sticks and bring them back and throw them on the fire. Right? So you've got to picture this. We have this fire in the backyard. It's completely dark at this time. Trees and a field beyond that. So I told him, okay, go ahead, Oliver. You can run out to the trees and get some sticks. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, no, I need your headlamp, daddy because every grown man should have a headlamp around their house as well. Uh, And so I get my headlamp and I put it on him. And then I watch as he runs out into the darkness, picks up sticks, runs back, puts them on the fire. The reality is that headlamp didn't clear up all the mystery, right? Like there could have still been creatures in the field. There there still could have been animals up in the trees, monsters behind whatever corner he couldn't see but the headlamp gave him the type of ability to take step after step after step after step into the darkness and the mystery and then come back. God's sovereignty does not clear up all the mystery. It does not clear up all our questions, but it gives us the ability to walk into darkness and mystery in our life, believing that there's a God who rules over it all and who is good and who has got us. And so we can step by step, by step, not know what lies 10 feet ahead, but know that he's got us right now and he'll have us there as well. I think that this is part of what we find in God's answer to the angel that he relays to Zechariah in verses 14 through 17. That we find some of the purposes of God's sovereignty. The, the ultimate purpose being, and you probably heard this before, that he rules for our good and his glory. Verses 14 through 17 burst with God's care for his people. Just just look back at them. I'm not going to read through them again, but just point some stuff out. He's jealous for his people. He's returning to them with mercy. He's going to cause their cities to overflow with prosperity. He's again going to comfort and choose his people. These verses are like a firework displaying God's heart to care for his people. That, that, that we find that, that's the first thing that's happening here. God is working to care for his people. Every situation that we walk through, every circumstance we face, every difficulty, every trial, God is ultimately working in such a way where he wants to display his care for us as he takes us through it. Like, the the reality that the God who rules over absolutely everything is the one who cares most deeply for you. Not your children, not your parents, not your spouse. The God who rules over everyone is the one who cares most deeply for you is an incredible reality for us to grasp and cling on to. And and not only is he working to care for his people, but he's also working to display his glory as he cares for his people. The angel says God is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, for his people. Do you know know where else the Bible talks about God being exceedingly jealous? We we find that show up in Ezekiel 39.25. Where God's actually talking about how he's going to restore his people. And says, therefore, thus says the Lord, God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous, exceedingly jealous, for my holy name." That God is jealous for his people and for his glory. And that those two things go hand in hand. God rules sovereignly over history so that time and time again, his people might be left saying, wow, look at how awesome our God is. Right? Like, like God, God takes Joseph and puts him in slavery at the hands of his brother as a 17-year-old teenager so that then he might cause him to be second command in Egypt and save the entire world from famine. Wow works like that? Like God, God saves his people from Egypt, taking them out from Pharaoh's hand just to lead them out and then have Pharaoh chase after them to destroy them only so that God can open the seas, have them walk through and then bring the seas back down his enemies. Well, what kind of God works like that? Right. God, God destroys his temple and his city and sends his people into exile only so that he can bring them back and restore them one day. Wow, what kind of God works like that? God becomes a man in Jesus and comes and dies in weakness so that he might raise back to life and conquer death in power. Wow, what kind of God works like that? Like as we read scripture, we find example after example after example of things that on the surface seem confusing and perplexing and not the way we would do it that ultimately end up with us saying, wow, look at God. And part of what I would hope is that as we walk through this life, we might also have those stories in our own lives as well. Where there are times that it's perplexing and confusing, that then we're able to look back and say, wow, I don't understand why God did things that way or what he was doing, but wow, look at how he's worked. So that it might continue to carry us through whatever's perplexing and confusing in front of us. And then the third thing I think that we can find in these Versus is God is working to magnify his grace. Just just think with me again about this time. There are all sorts of people who are more powerful than Israel. All sorts of people who are more wealthy than Israel. All sorts of people who are more influential than Israel. If God's sovereign, he can choose anyone. Any people to represent him. Any people to work through. If I'm God, I choose the Persians 10 times out of 10 in this day. They're powerful. They're wealthy. They're big. I can do something through them. And yet God says, no, I'm going to choose again my people, this broken down city of Israelites who seem so small and insignificant. And I'm going to work through them just as I promised in my covenant. I'm choosing them again, renewing my covenant to them. Verse 17 where it says God is choosing his people again, echoes back to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 where we find the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. And we hear a foreshadow that points forward to 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If God is sovereign, he can choose anyone to save and work through. And yet God continually displays his grace in choosing the weakest, most insignificant people in the world, like the Israelites, like me, and like you. I mean, when we, when we grasp how big God is, and he's ruling over everything, and then we grasp how small and insignificant and sinful we are, it should just leave us stunned that God would choose to save us. Just as much as we say why to all sorts of mysterious things that happen in this world, so much so should we say, God, why would you ever choose to love me and save me? That's part of what this vision is meant to do, to leave the Israelites and leave us stunned that the ruler of heaven and earth would love us and be with us and choose us. But we can't just stop there because we need to look ahead to the final vision in Zechariah to see the conclusion of God's sovereignty. And so let's read in Zechariah 6, 1 through 8 quickly. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dabbled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of the heaven, the corners of the earth. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country and the white ones go after them and the dappled horses go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth and he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth and then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. See, we see horses again in this vision. But these are not horses that are coming back to report. These are horses that are headed out into battle. They're chained up to chariots, which are like tanks of this day. This is a battle scene. God's sending out his host to do battle. And we read, they go to the north and the south. Why is that? Because that's where Israel's enemies traditionally came in from. Egypt came up from the south to attack them and Assyria and Babylon and Persia would have to come down from the north and so year after year they've got these memories of enemies coming in and attacking them and think what it would have done for the Israelites to see instead God sending out his host to defeat their enemies like God wants Israel to be captured with this vision that in the end he wins in the end, he wins. The conclusion of God's sovereignty is God wins. Israel needs to know her enemies would be defeated, that God would ultimately give her victory. And you and I need to know that as well. If we're going to continue to walk in faith through a life that is difficult, that is painful, and that is full of pressure at times. This is part of why we see the similarity between Zechariah and Revelation as well. Revelation picks up on this idea of horses and horsemen to convey God's victory in the world. Anthony Pedersen says this, It is perhaps the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, 11-16 that has a greater affinity with Zachariah's last vision since it connects to the final judgment where the nations of the world will be subjected to his rule. This is the rider called the Word of God who is followed by the hosts of heaven also on white horses, and who strikes down the rebellious nations with his sword. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Like the victory of Yahweh's host in Zechariah 6, Christ's assured victory is to give courage to God's people today and to inspire obedience to the word he has spoken. God wants us to live as people who know the end so that we might live with courage and confidence in the present. One of the times that you will see me perhaps most tense and worked up is during a Philadelphia uh, Eagles playoff game. And I don't know, you can judge me. I, I care too much about the Eagles. I already know that. But there's something about a Philadelphia Eagles playoff game where it seems like there's so much on the line that gets me worked up. I might be sitting on the edge of my seat, or, or, I, or I might be quiet, kind of glaring at the people who are talking in the middle of the game, or, or I might be yelling at the TV. And I know you say yelling at the TV doesn't work, but, but it might at some point. Right? I'm, I'm tense, I'm worked up. And I think about how different would I watch a game if I knew that in the end, the Eagles win? I think it would give me this type of yes, but mentality. The, the Eagles fumbled on their first drive. Yeah, that's not good. But they win. The, the Eagles quarterback just got injured and taken out of the game, yeah, that's not good at all. That's really bad. But they win. The Eagles are down by 30 points at halftime. Man, that's pretty bleak. But they win. God wanted the Israelites to have this type of yes, but mentality, I would say. Yes, the Persians are ruling over you, but God rules over the Persians. Yes, life is difficult and feels impossible right now, but God is caring caring for you in the midst of this. Yes, so much of what God has promised hasn't come true yet, but God is still faithful to his promises. And I think God wants us to live today with this type of yes but mentality. Yes, there are all sorts of powerful people and forces that oppose the church and harm her at times, but God rules over those people and they're like grasshoppers in his sight. Yes, it seems like the church can flounder at times and be so weak, but God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Yes, suffering comes again and again into our lives and is so difficult, but God is carrying us through all suffering. Yes, death comes and shatters our lives and so much about it, but Jesus has conquered death because God wins His people win as well. And that's something that can inject a type of courage and confidence in us to live in the present no matter what may be happening in front of us. If your faith is in Christ, you come out on top in the end no matter how far down you may be right now. And if your faith isn't in Christ, God is inviting you to repent, turn, trust in Jesus, and know the one who rules sovereignly over everything is then going to rule for your good and bring you out on top in the end through Jesus as well. This leads to just the the question we want to ask. How should God's sovereignty affect us? And I think there's two big ways from these passages. Two big ways God wanted to affect Israel. Number one, it should comfort us. I believe God's sovereignty is a medicine for anything that ails us in this life. Anything that we face in this life. That I'm convinced it's the greatest medicine that we can take for all of our discouragement and pain in this life. That we have a good God who is ruling over everything and everyone to accomplish his purposes. And that his purposes are ultimately for his glory and for our good. Like, if we just, if that truth constantly sunk into our hearts, it would be a source of comfort over and over and over again. Not to make everything go away and easy, but to provide us with a type of comfort as we walk through what is so difficult. But God's sovereignty shouldn't just comfort us, it should also motivate us. It should motivate us to prayerful obedience to what He's called us to do. See, Part of why God is revealing his sovereignty to the Israelites in this passage is to convince them, build the temple, build Jerusalem. Do you notice he promises, I'm going to build a temple and I'm going to build Jerusalem. How does he do it? Through his people. Part of, what God is, part of why God reveals his sovereignty to us today is to motivate us in the work that he's given us to do. The mission to make disciples in your home in the church, in your neighborhood, and in the nations, right? God's sovereignty should motivate us in our mundane daily obedience as we love and serve other people around them and seek to point them to Christ and trust God to do the work. And it should motivate us in our risky obedience. Like where is God calling you to step out in faith and do something that feels so big and terrifying to be able to remember my God is bigger. And so I'll step out and I'll trust him, even though I have no idea what's going to happen in the midst of this. We have to guard against being people who cause God's sovereignty to lead us to be passive, as if we then think, well, he's got everything, so I don't have to do anything. No, God rules to bring about his purposes using means, you and I, to accomplish his purposes in the end. Here's the, the big idea. God's sovereign rule is a comfort and motivation to his discouraged people. It's a comfort and motivation to his discouraged people throughout history. There is a commercial right now that you've probably seen before. It's a commercial for Geico Insurance. And in it, you see their mascot, the gecko. And he's on this boat, sailboat, in the middle of a bay. And as he's sailing, he's telling you about why you should buy Geico car insurance or home insurance. And then there's these bumps Boat starts to shake, and the picture zooms out. And what you find is he's just on this little remote control sailboat. And what's happening is there's this little boy who's got these controls, and unfortunately, he's kind of fumbling at the controls and can't figure out the sailboat. In our lives, when we face discouragement of all sorts of types, what we ultimately need is to be able to zoom out and to see from a heavenly perspective And to see a God who's ruling over it all and who is not fumbling at the controls, wondering, what should I do? But who has the controls perfectly in hand as he guides our life and as he guides history. And that this is a God who's ultimately ruling with wisdom, with power, and love. That that might be a source of comfort for us and a source of motivation in what he calls us to do. Let's pray. God, we exalt you as the Lord of hosts. You are both bigger and better than I will ever grasp. And yet you reveal yourself to us in such a way where you want us to lean on you, to trust you, and to step out in faith, believing that you rule over our lives. God, I pray that as we see you as big and see you as ruler of heaven and earth, it might bring us comfort in the face of all our discouragements, and it might bring us motivation to press on in obedience to you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.